Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, the show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Yep. <laughs> Today is episode five, part three. So just part episode five, three. Uh, and we're going to be talking about, well, it looks like it's still uh, act five, act two, which which just hasn't stopped. It's just kept going. Um... Uh, unless you have something to say, Cameron, I will I will summarize what we read today. Where are we page length for Act 5 versus the other act? Uh, uh, funny enough, um, this is a conversation that has come up in the thread. Let me just... The, the Something Awful thread, that is. Let me just pull up this link to, to get some numbers that they've run. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always great when someone runs the numbers back in time. Mm-hmm. And you can archivally access them. So uh, this is this is a little bit before today's uh, uh, reading, or actually a little bit after today's reading. Um, mm-hmm. It's from early February of 2011. Uh, but someone in the Something Awful thread says, just a random observation, um, but this marks the 800th page of Act 5-2 at about four and a half months into it. And that just baffles me. I've seen webcomics whose entire multiple-year runs didn't reach that many pages. Um, someone else responds, Act 5 alone is about as long as Problem Sleuth. Hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, Act 5 of Homestuck, inclusive of uh, Acts 1 and Acts 2, is just a little over 1,400 pages at this point, um, which for this point in history, someone else points out, uh, is about 40% of the entirety of the comic thus far. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going. It keeps happening. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oof. Golly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, it is, it is notably long, like, people are beginning to notice how long it is, and beginning mm-hmm. to kind of wonder what the heck is going on, because, uh, it's one of those, it's, it's, up until this point, uh, and I was talking about this last time, actually, you know, people were thinking, oh, the, this act is going to end when Jade enters the medium, or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. there was a, a sort of, uh, structured expectations for how this story is getting told and as Hussey has said in the form spring and in, in multiple ways right uh, if you think you if you have expectations for this story if you think that it has limits or boundaries well you're wrong because other stuff is going to happen and I guess this is one of those other things is that an act is just going to get extremely long got him <laughs> <laughs> take that haters yeah <laughs> I can I can make a thing go on way too long <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my form spring responses or my mm-hmm. book commentary. Um, uh, well, that that is interesting because I'm feeling it. Mm-hmm. Not really in a negative way. I think I'm like in in the zone now. Mm-hmm. I'm in Homestuck's machine zone mm-hmm. where I just sit down and power through these pages. Mm-hmm. But I would say I, I you know I I don't think I'm particularly enjoying it or not enjoying it. Um, I mean we'll talk about it when we get there. But you know I like to check in emotionally. Mm-hmm. That's good, and uh, I'm not hating it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. I've not. I'm not at the point where I have been in the past few partisodes where I've said I definitely would have stopped reading this if mm-hmm. I weren't being made to read it. <laughs> but uh, I'm not quite there. But but I think maybe it's just you know it's like getting in a hot tub too hot. You know, eventually you just get used to it, and your body's just too hot, and you can't do anything about it. You can't regulate your temperatures, and you slowly cook like a lobster. 
Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about Homestuck right now. Homestuck, it slowly cooks you like a lobster. Yep. Uh, I'll summarize uh, today's reading. Okay. <clears throat> Dave sleeps on his quest bed. Another Dave approaches, sword in hand. It turns out that after John ascended to the god tier, Dave asked Terezi for guidance on powering up. To protect the integrity of the timeline, she flipped a coin, and Dave independently decided which result meant he would learn about god tier leveling now or later. Terezi now explains what happened. At the moment, the waking Dave made the decision to learn later, in an offshoot timeline, he made the decision to learn now. Under Terezi's instruction, that alternate Dave traveled through time to this moment and went to sleep on his quest bed, with the waking Dave faced with the choice of killing his doomed alternate self and possibly ascending to god tier. He refuses and, irritated with Terezi, says he needs to go check in with his teammates. Terezi plays it cool and expounds her philosophy that it is the strength of one's ideas that determine the nature of reality, while luck, Vriska's favorite aspect, means nothing at all. Flashing back to the Trolls game, we see Vriska bloodied and dying from her battle with Robo Aradia. Tavros prepares to kiss revive her, but she psychically halts him, then uses his hands to write with her own blood instructions to take her to her quest bed, where she continues to use psychic blood scrawlings to urge Tavros to kill her. Tavros resists her urgings, as well as the urgings of the Midnight crew from their exile stations. Vriska continues to make him write messages, begging him not to to let her bleed to death, eventually rubbing the weeping Tavros's hands raw. Vriska, meanwhile, resists the exile commands from Snowman to psychically force Tavros to kill her. Tavros flees and Vriska bleeds out, resurrecting as a god-tier player. In the kids' game, Jade is contacted by Aridin, who, having gained the powers of science wands, gives her the code for his former, most powerful weapon, a rifle he believes he inherited from his ancestor. Ancestors in troll culture, we learn, are individualized mythological hero figures whose past journeys supposedly foretell one's life trajectory. Jade recognizes the gun as the same one wielded, in miniature, by the bunny she gifted John, which was in turn sent to her by her pen pal, who, she now reveals, claimed to be her grandson. Aridin blathers about how he's going to show everyone how badass and important he is before heading off to fulfill his destiny. In the Trolls Lab, Robo Aradia suddenly experiences a moment of peace, bids Solix goodbye, and explodes for some reason. Taking a cue from Tavros, Jade decides to work with Bexbrite and rushes to an attic laboratory where her grandfather stored a fourth wall stolen from the medium along with the taxidermied corpse of Jade's dream self, acquired at the end of Act 4. Jade summons Bexbrite and then prototypes him with her dream corpse. However, Jade Sprite, in addition to being part dog, is horrified and distressed at her sudden return to life, and her uncontrolled green zappy powers cause the attic tower to crumble. The narrative informs us that as this happens, a mysterious timer counts down to zero, and the most important character in Homestuck, blissfully smiling through smudged clown makeup and smears of purple blood, watches the collapse on a monitor, fondly regarding the miracle of a new beginning. 
Jade's attic falls to the ground, and she and Jade Sprite are stuck in the resulting clutter along with the now-cracked fourth wall, which has flipped on to display a mysterious green room. Lord English is commanded to reveal himself, and beyond the fourth wall, Andrew Hussey appears, wearing English's massive flashing overcoat, which is just way too big. Obviously, A.H. isn't Lord English, since that would be stupid, and they throw the coat aside before imitating Doc Scratch and writing another absolutely pointless recap in all white text. Back on the other side of the wall, Jade Sprite tearfully explains that she actually enjoyed whatever the afterlife was, which I guess existed, and where she apparently made a lot of friends, and she does not want to be alive again and deal with all the pressures of the adventure. Frustrated with seeing herself so hesitant and fearful, Jade harangues Jade Sprite before being contacted by Carcat, who is finally ready to implement the plan that he and future Jade have come up with. The first step, he tells her, is to capture log the fourth wall. On post-apocalyptic Earth, WV assumes John has died permanently but cannot leave the exile station, which has run out of fuel, and he ate the delicious green uranium block that could have powered it way back in Act 2 or something. Outside, WQ informs PM that they must await an additional exile, the former White King, or as he is known after spending several millennia in the Frog Temple's time capsule reading Rose's unfinished wizard novel, The Rit Keeper. After this, the Exiles must destroy all their stations, and PM must appoint a champion to bear the Queen's ring and fight Jack Noir. Still locked in his own exile station, WV passes the time by building a fort. He falls asleep and has a dream that quickly becomes a nightmare, as he sees himself imbued with Beck powers and wreaking havoc on the battlefield. Vriska appears in his dream as a tiny bug and tells him to back off because Jack Noir is hers. In a flash, called S. Wake, two things happen. One is that, earlier in the Trolls postgame, Jack Noir destroyed their version of Purpo. However, Noir unknowingly incinerated the corpse of Aradia's dream self, which was lying on a quest bed-like slab in a crypt in the center of Purpo's moon. This coincides with Robo Aradia exploding in the lab as she is unexpectedly resurrected as a god-tier player of time, and she immediately uses her powers to freeze Jack in place. About an hour later, Vriska wakes from her WV-harassing nap and meets Tavros for their confrontation, which ends as she stabs him through the chest with his own lance and tosses his corpse off a ledge into the abyss. Back in the computer lab, Kanaya watches the future moment where Rose goes mysteriously dark on her monitor. She ends up chatting quite a bit with Jade, as they are both space players in their respective games and have similar functions. It turns out that one of the main duties of space players is scouring their planet for frogs that they can ectobiologically clone and interbreed through a complex and elaborate process to create something called the Genesis Frog. This turns out to be the true identity of the frog god Bilius Slick, whose advent Prospet awaits and Purpo despises. For the Genesis frog, created by a game session, is in fact the universe created by that session. Let me just say that again so we can all take a moment to appreciate it. The entire point of the game is not simply to create a new universe, but to actually create a magical frog deity who literally embodies the universe. Wow. Astonishing. Anyway, 
Kanaya also talks a bit about how the players are further tasked with repopulating their race, and explains how this was to be her particular responsibility for the trolls, since her caste is dedicated to facilitating troll reproduction. After the death of her Lucis, a virgin mother grub, she retrieved from its corpse an object called the Matriorb, from which a new mother grub may be hatched. While she thought she was to accomplish this in the universe they created, Kanaya now suspects she should nest the Matriorb in the core of the Meteor Lab. She sets off to do so just after Terezi flees the room, feeling remorseful in the wake of Alt-Dave's death. Karkat complains that the group is unraveling, with all the trolls except for him, Kanaya, Solix, and Feferi isolating themselves around the meteor. Aridin appears and orders Feferi to break up with Solix so he can escort her to Jack Noir, where he will offer their allegiance as troll aristocracy in the continued decimation of the session and or reality. Solix and Aridin duel again, ending with Solix being KO'd. Feferi tries to retaliate, but Aridin murders her with a blast of science to the torso, then does the same to the Matriorb. Kanaya lunges with her chainsaw, but she too is eviscerated by science, and Aridin flees, leaving behind a stunned Karkat. What's uh what's Homestar Runner doing in this comic? Uh tell me tell me about Homestar Runner. Well, okay. There's his website. Okay. <laughs> He's got a best friend named Strongman. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Real mean to him. Dressed <laughs> like a wrestler. Uh, no, the king looks like Homestar Runner. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? The white king. Yeah. He has, like, kind of like the big, like, goofy face. Yes. He uh, does have that kind the, of <laughs> The To the extent where I had no idea who this character was. <laughs> And I thought, oh my god, they've incorporated Homestar Runner. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, you have seen this character before, but in fairness, it was like uh, way back when uh, Jack Noir was first like Sephirothing around the battlefield in Act Mm 4. So, (laughs) uh, yeah. Um, So, a minute ago. A a minute ago, yeah. In in story time, just a few minutes ago. Uh, yep, all that stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Good up. <laughs> See you later. Yep, bye. Uh, no, discussion-wise, uh, I have some, actually, some really big, exciting historical updates. Um, mm. uh, you've asked previously, Cameron, about, uh, you know, where where is Tumblr in all of this? And, mm-hmm. uh, sort of Tumblr fandom, and I admitted, I think, about two partisodes ago at this point, that I wasn't really sure, uh, which, uh, of course, prompted uh, a couple of people to reach out to me and provide some timelines. And I want to say that there is nothing more beautiful than, like, receiving uh, a bunch of timelines regarding an event. In this case, like, when did Homestuck fandom happen on Tumblr? And all of these people come from very different contexts uh, and have, like, different stories they tell of how they got into the Homestuck fandom on Tumblr. But when all of their stories are aligned, all of the timelines match up. It's wonderful. So, you, so, so you're really you're Pepe Silvia in in there. You're, yes. you're you, you've got the big diagram and you're putting it all together. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, um, the folks that reached out, uh, just to shout them out, uh, uh, were idyllic on Tumblr. Um, Hamamelis, uh, who's actually in our Discord, uh, and then Jared, uh, who reached out on Twitter, but I actually think I've seen in the Discord a couple times, uh, and also, quite specifically, is uh, someone that I recognize from the Something Awful thread. Um, mm. 
so uh, uh, Idyllic uh, uh, mentioned that uh, uh, the they came in and kind of like the the younger end of the Homestuck fandom, um, kind of around summer of 2011. Uh, uh, hold on, I need sorry, guys, a clarifying question. Sure. What is the younger end of the Homestuck fandom? Well, that's a, that that's a legitimate real question. Are those twelve year olds? Are those six year olds? I would say uh, at this point, it seems like, and this is a, assuming sort of like extrapolating from from what I was told, uh, mm-hmm. maybe about fifteen, sixteen thereabouts. Okay, like later okay. high school. Mm. Um, uh, Hamamelis uh, had a, a really interesting story about how um, people who were in the Hitalia fandom, Hitalia being like an you know anime manga franchise about. Uh, <laughs> Person, are you familiar with Hitalia? Cameron? Yeah, we don't have okay. to get into it. If you're, uh, yeah. it is. Uh, um, I'm not into it. Like, yeah. I'll just say that, <laughs> like conceptually. If you want to learn more about it, feel free to get on Wikipedia. Yeah. So the uh, uh, anime manga franchise, like, uh, there was sort of a, a moment where a lot of the Hitalia fandom was kind of like filtering into the Homestuck fandom. Um, and then uh, Jared had some of the most exciting uh, updates about this, which is that Tumblr's been in the thread for a long time, but no one is talking about it. So, uh, as I said, I like I immediately recognized Jared from the thread. Um, so I am trusting this. I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's true. Uh, Jared mm-hmm. told me that there were already uh, by the time. Uh, the robo smooch happened, right? When uh, uh, Equius did that weird, gross thing with Aradia. Mm-hmm. Um, by that time, says Jared, uh, the Homestuck fandom on Tumblr seemed to have been pretty much like it had solidified as like a thing. So that's summer of 2010. Um, and already. Uh, says Jared, there are like multiple repeat posters in the thread who I assume is is including Jared <laughs> um, uh, who are active on Tumblr, uh, reblogging fan art and even like writing fanfic. Mm, so it's going, it's just not being commented on. It's yes. Surfacing as Tumblr. Yes, right. It, it's 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 weirdly like uh, uh, submerged. Um, no one is mentioning Tumblr. No one is talking about it. However, uh this is this is the series of pages where that all changes. We get our first explicit mention of Tumblr in the thread. It comes from a mod. Um, the mod has shown up in the thread uh, a couple of times, uh, basically to tell people to like, well, one of the first things that the mod showed up to do was say that there was a new rule in BSS, uh, Something Awful's comic subforum. Mm-hmm. Um, uh- to batman's shameful secret or something well it was batman's shameful secret at uh this point historically now today it is a bisexual super son oh that's quite interesting (laughs) Uh, but yeah but it's comics broadly including Mm -hmm. uh web comics print comics uh you know your alt weeklies all that stuff Mm -hmm. um so, uh, uh, Waterhall, who was the mod for BSS at this time, uh, comes in uh, a couple of partisodes ago at this point and says, like, hey, heads up, uh, no shipping discussion. Like, no one, wow. like, no one in any thread about any topic should be discussing shipping, uh, or posting shipping fan art and things like that. Um, this continues to happen. 
uh, people are still doing it in the thread. Uh, and in, in this chunk of reading, uh, Waterhall comes back in to say, uh, hey, stop posting all of the weird shipping fan art that you're finding on LiveJournal or DeviantArt or tumblr uh and posting it ironically in quotes so you know waterhall is is uh, uh not having any of this um mm. but this is the first explicit mention of tumblr that i have seen um i guess the other thing that i should mention uh you know you're reading a lot of uh pages cameron in in terms yep. of this comic indeed uh i read 170 pages of forum posts in addition to this comic <sighs> so <laughs> we we're, i'm i'm uh i'm uh solid snake saluting you on this one <laughs> little solid solid snake in the meme you know you're at the grave you're big boss's grave on this one. yeah uh your service was appreciated you warped the 20th century r.i.p to the uh-huh mm-hmm. um so so this is the situation i'm in meaning that like maybe tumblr did get mentioned in a post that like i could not absorb because you know my brain does occasionally reach saturation points when i'm working through this mm-hmm. um but uh Anyway, the first mention that I see of, or that that's the first mention of Tumblr that I see is Waterhall saying, stop reposting art from there. Uh, and this is like a floodgate opens. Suddenly people are talking about Tumblr extremely frequently. People are now like linking to their Tumblrs and to their friends' Tumblrs. Mm. Um, there is a person who uh, like, um, it, it is like talking a lot about like what the Tumblr fandom is is doing, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. So, and then there's like a person who is like there kind of just specifically reporting on Tumblr and saying like, oh, Tumblr's going crazy with regard to this or that update or like, wow, the Tumblr kids are, are really, uh, in like into this or like, oh, can you believe that they would like that? And then there are people who are asking, uh, people who post frequently about Tumblr, like, hey, uh, all of you, and they're they're you know posting fan art from their Tumblr uh, circles, and they're like, "Hey, who do you follow on Tumblr? I need some recommendations." And so, like, people are Tumblr networking in the thread. <laughs> now, this person who keeps reporting on uh, uh, the Tumblr fandom. Um, and I'm going to like, you know, flag this with a heavy caveat, right? That this is like a specific person who is like in a specific sort of like circle of this fandom on Tumblr. Um, and also that these people, this like, uh, someone reporting or, or a group of people reporting on what other people are talking about, uh, RE Homestuck in another location. This is just a replication. Also what was going on with the MS paint forums, right? Yes. Like, like there's something weird here that the that the something awful thread people make it their like little social function to tell everyone else what's going on in a like cast down you know uh uh fandom space that mm-hmm. that the something awful thread is better than yes Th- this is this is a very common um something awful mode mm-hmm. um which which is you know this is the exact thing of like the contemporary and lots of people do this this is not like any particular individual but the let me tell you about the thing that happened on something awful 10 years ago mm-hmm. like on twitter that like social function that people do mm-hmm. it's people who are former something awful people doing what something awful did to other communities but right. now on a different medium it's, well, it- it's great <laughs> And it's literally what I'm doing right now. Yes, that's what <laughs> <Right>? I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
So like, there's something about how the social function keeps going. But mm-hmm. anyway, and and the other thing to add is Michael, right, let's like, call out achieved. <laughs> the the other thing to to just sort of like underscore right is that any person reporting on like what another internet community is doing is going to be a highly biased perspective. <laughs> yes, right. right? Um, so yeah. what this person says is not necessarily what I am. I Every time I say, I, I've said this before, but anytime I quote someone in the something awful thread commenting about like what's going on somewhere else in the internet, I want to like give that as many grains of salt as you could possibly take with it, right? Understand mm-hmm. that these are kind of uh, always rhetorically situated in, in very interesting yep. ways. Um, they're, they, they're a performance for the something awful crowd. Yes, and they yeah, they are providing a certain sort of uh, persona or perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so this person is uh, constantly reporting on what is happening on Tumblr. Uh, according to them, uh, Tumblr loves Aridin. So naturally, at the end of this update, like, uh, there's, oh, the Tumblr kids who think uh, Aridin just needs to, like, you know, get get a little bit of love and he'll be redeemed. Uh, they're just losing their shit. Uh, Tumblr is, and this is a quote, a cesspool of Aridin fan art. This person uh, every time they post is disgusted with uh, like how much these people apologize for Aridin, mm. these theoretical people. Now, here's the- because he's a fascist Harry Potter. Yes, because he's a fascist okay. Harry Potter. Now, okay, I just didn't know where the disgust was coming from. I, that's what I assumed. But. Yeah, yeah. Every everyone in the thread is basically on the same page that Aridin is like a, a gross, weepy, nice guy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, here's the damn thing, Cameron. This person. Has an Aridin avatar. <laughs> and every time they post fan art, they are very much posting uh, a lot of Aridin fan art. Mm. Uh, they post, for instance, this particular piece of fan art by um, Cycli um, that I'm getting ready to send you. Okay. Uh, this is this is Aridin with like a little Sherlock Holmes hat on. Um, yeah, this is from an AU. Evil fucker. <laughs> this is from an AU that got really popular uh, in the fandom. It's called Troll Cops. Um, oh, and it's like a sort of noir detective uh, alternate universe continuity where that's yep. uh, it, it falls out of like some joke fan art of Terezi and Solix being cops who are partners. And then when they have to go places, uh, Solix has to like flash his eyes like the, the sirens. Hmm. Yes, right. Like, <laughs> okay, something something we might uh, uh, think a bit differently about now here in in twenty twenty two. But the other thing to to think about here is that just I think in the previous part episode it was people were laughing at the idea of AUs, right? Um, uh-huh. And now we are discussing troll cops, which is just like, you know, there are people in the fandom who are just like making troll cops fan art. Like in in this situation, uh, you know, who would all the other characters be? How would they interact with this kind of setting and story? Um, they're also talking about a fan adventure called Colony Mired that is about uh, a bunch of adult trolls like on a colony in kind of the troll empire and what's going on there. Um, and then there's a blood swap uh AU that's pretty uh got a lot of traction with the something awful posters called Red Dead Virgo. Um that is basically like uh what if Kanaya was of I think Aradia's blood cast and it's like uh I think very much centered on uh uh like Vriska Kanaya shipping. So <laughs> like here we are. 
Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, and this is part of what I talked about last time, right? The sort of way that I'm starting to come around on on fandom in, in general. Like, I think all of this is terribly silly. And at the same time, it is wild to me that in entire alternate continuities are popping up that don't have, like, a sort of central voice behind them. Something like Troll Cops. Uh, like, it's multiple people kind of, like, chiming in on an idea. And all of this sort of production is happening. And it's it's really... I mean... You know, it's the sort of thing that has been happening in fandom, um, but I wouldn't have seen it because I was a little hater. <laughs> mm-hmm. Little hater Michael. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, oh, and the other thing that I wanted to mention, because this is this is a, another kind of long tale, and it's something that's actually come up in the Discord as well. Um, it seems like there was a pre-existing, uh, pretty large overlap between the Team Fortress 2 fandom and the Homestuck fandom, because now lots of people are, are making... Um, this is about the time, I think, that you could start making items in TF2, like customizing mm. them. Oh, okay. Um, and so people are making, like, Homestuck items, right? There's, like, a hat that someone's made uh, that is supposed to be like one of the midnight cruise hats um and there is someone uh in the thread after after uh vriska kills tavros <laughs> um oh, s- someone uh adapts uh the little animation of her taunting tavros with uh his like uh severed legs into what i just sent you in discord which is this spray of an engineer like holding a broken uh spy sapper uh so uh-huh Right, so we, we have kind of like fandom overlap, right? Uh, and I think, uh, to my recollection, right, uh, early on in Tumblr, there was also a pretty active TF2 fandom. I mean, it pre-existed Tumblr, but that's another kind of interesting case of uh, here are some really like two-dimensional characters and people like can generate so much uh, content and continuity and sort of interiority and life with them when uh, it, in a really strange way, like all of the TF2 player characters are very much Homestuckian in that they're like game pieces or cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then people built extremely elaborate stories out of them. Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think we, we have someone in the discord. I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to call anyone out. Um, but, uh, someone in the discord who their only interaction, if I remember correctly with Homestuck was a TF2, like RP server or something. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that checks out to me. What I think is interesting there is that we are seeing how fandoms feed into other fandoms and how kind of uh, fandom attitudes recur across uh, or like irrespective maybe of media properties um, mm-hmm. or that there are certain attitudes that can uh, make more hay out of uh, different aspects of different media properties. Mm-hmm. I love making hay. <laughs> uh, g- g- give me them scraps. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I don't know, uh, uh, I've got stuff that I could or would want to talk about, but is there anything that, like, you want to, want to get off your chest here? Let's see, Homestar Runner. Mm-hmm. Why is there a special Christmas episode in the middle of this? Oh, because Christmas happened. Yeah. But, <laughs> the, uh, the stapled nature of Homestuck mm-hmm. really shows through in some moments. Mm-hmm. Where... We have to take a long pause from this, like, teen drama. And we're about to get right back to the teen drama. But we're going back to, like, act one. Big goofery. <laughs> to, like, make a Christmas tree and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jade gets her little uh, alchemy binge where she makes a whole bunch of Christmas things. 
and uh, like cool armor and a robot that she hates. It's Johnny Five, uh, mm-hmm. and it ends like I do love how how it ends with her standing there with all of the stuff that she's made and like dancing. And the uh, the caption for the panel is just "Happy April Thirteenth, Two Thousand Nine, Everybody." Mm-hmm. And it was posted on, mm-hmm. of course, Christmas Day. I remember, I remember Cameron reading <sighs> that on Christmas Day and laughing so hard. It got you. It got me. <laughs> Andrew, you done damn did it again. <laughs> there was there I was on uh December 25th of 2010 and I was like it's funny cuz it's not April 13th 2009. <laughs> mhm. I there is uh, so much like lampshade hanging in this piece that we read for this part episode where it's like yeah, but uh it's only been a couple days. <laughs> Haha, <laughs> this is this is, game's only been going on for a couple weeks, maybe. Hee <laughs> hee. I'm a scamp. Like yeah, okay. But yeah, sure. <laughs> which which makes the uh like bouncing back and forth around what are like the actual ages of these characters versus the way they are written, that mm-hmm. makes that stuff even more incongruous because the, the, the comic is repeatedly reminding us, hey, these people are like twelve, thirteen years old. Mm-hmm. They very quickly are being written as like 40 year old adults who are like on the other end of their life. (laughs) (laughs) So it it really, uh, it really goes. Um, Yeah, I I thought all the that stuff, especially Johnny Five, it's like, oh, it's a movie reference. Mm -hmm. Like, here we go. Here's something for the bonus odes. We get to do that. We get Charles Dutton again. Uh huh. We, which we've talked about a little bit. What's up with Jude's, uh, or, uh, Jude? <laughs> Secret character, never spoken about Jude. Jade. That's actually character in, in the video game, Cameron. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hive swap character. <laughs> Spoilers. <clears throat> uh, okay. Uh, spoilers. Um, that really threw me off. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, uh, Jade's pen pal is her grandson. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Um, is this the first we've heard of that? I mean, it's it's the first time we've heard that the pen pal is the grandson. Okay. Um, up until this point, I think kind of the big going theory, and I think I mentioned this maybe last part episode, uh, was that the pen pal was somehow uh, uh, Jade's grandpa. But young, mm. right? Like it, mm. like Jade's grandpa in the past, right? Of course, like time bullshit is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, here here Jade is uh, says uh, that she was told by the pen pal that he is her grandson. And mm. that's kind of a, a weird turn that everything takes. I mean, it's not like it, it totally derails people because it's it's time bullshit just in the other direction. Right. Yeah. Um. But it does kind of uh, change the character of speculation because it does like for people uh, reading in in sort of the the moment, right, in making these. Hold on. um, Let's see if I had this in these sixty eight hundred forum posts that I read. um, Right. uh, People who are theorizing kind of update to update, they're like, oh, okay, so this means that at some point uh, the kids get out of this situation. Right. And Mm -hmm. have like. Have their own kids, evidently. No, thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hard pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, into Harry Potter ass. <laughs> Homestuck experience. <laughs> God, can you imagine that? 
Oh uh, boy. What, what what was it canonically that occurred? I, I you were tweeting about it. Canonically what occurred at the end of that uh wasn't wasn't Harry saying something about uh Margaret Thatcher? Oh, oh, the thing that I tweeted. Yes. Uh yeah. uh it's um uh no, it's it's Jenny who says she's beginning to come round on Thatcher. That's right. In That's the right. in the uh, absolutely one hundred percent true and unedited scan that I posted of the final page of the final Harry Potter book. Yeah, what an odd choice. But I mean, we see you where that all went. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I'm I'm looking here. Um, with other stuff that I had here, I so that whole conver- set of conversations, right, with Jade. Mm-hmm. So it very quickly moves from like big goof, big goof troop mode mm-hmm. to uh, uh, hussy, hussy in Lord English's house mm-hmm. with that horse punching wizard picture in the background. Yes. <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> uh, so that's still there. That's a good, good old callback. I forgot about that about the horse punching photograph. And our painting, I guess it's not a photograph. And um, but then you get Jade resurrecting herself, and then brutalizing herself. Mm-hmm. And that's weird. Yeah, uh, it, it's the 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 panels. So if you're not reading along, uh, with with the show, one of the things you might not pick up on about Homestuck is that Hussey is constantly reusing uh, previous panels and like explicitly like taking those old panels and redrawing them so that events are constantly seeming to iterate upon themselves. Mm-hmm. And this scene where Jade starts, uh, uh, as you say, brutalizing uh, Jade Sprite because Jade Sprite uh, just won't stop crying like her dialogue is just boo hoo 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 boo hoo 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 yeah and something that's so notable about that to me is that this is literally the the comic thematizing you know making text the thing that i've been talking about which mm-hmm. is that these characters after the act break don't work the way they did before mm-hmm. and this is literally new jade saying old jade <laughs> is insufficient to the conditions of New Jade. Even though the the only difference between them, time-wise, is like 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so it's so bizarre to like see that. It, and so much of that is what's happening here. Oh, sorry, I'll, you can mm-hmm. you can finish what you were saying about repeated panels, though. Oh, oh, so just the this this series of panels is uh, drawn on uh, the Aradia Equius, um, confrontation where Aradia realizes after she's gotten into the robot body that Equius has like uh, put in some sort of mind control chip and then she rips out her heart and then she starts slapping Equius around. Um, so this is like redrawn to be uh, uh, like live Jade in the uh, place of Aradia bot um, slapping around Jade Sprite who is in the position of Equius. Uh, and so We've got just like this this repeated scene, right? Like the actors, because of the the sort of modularity of these characters, um, they can be sort of like transposed upon one another uh, in ways that leave you wondering to what degree am I supposed to like take something thematic from this? And the answer is you should take nothing thematic from anything, uh, according to like Formspring responses, because mm-hmm. it's just this is just callbacks are happening for callbacks sake. Well, and you know, this is uh, another, I think, kind of payoff for, I guess I can talk about two things here simultaneously. So one of them uh, in the ultimate Homestuck move. But uh, one thing that's notable here is that I generally, and I've, I've talked about this in the last couple of episodes, 
generally the what I've called like Hussey's visual imagination, mm-hmm. it has atrophied over this act. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the things that I have thought were really interesting about formally what's going on panel to panel, you know, all the things we said in the earliest part episodes about, you know, the way the gutter is used and the way that like POV or uh, sight lines or things like that, the way that those are kind of cinematically used um, or using some of the language of cinema. Uh, that that is gone. That's mm-hmm. almost entirely absent from these things at this point. Uh, you know, especially since there's such a heavy use of just uh, chat logs. We'll get like one image at the top, and often because of the way these work, the images aren't related to one another, like piece to piece. When you were talking earlier in the thread about the kind of stats, you know, mm-hmm. and how this is that the output for this is like significantly higher than like the total output for many other web comics. That's true. Like I totally get that. But also these are single panels that often have nothing to do with one another. This is not, this is very slowly becoming not even sequential art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's becoming a piece of art that is um, annotated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the text is becoming the piece, which is fine. Like I, I'm not saying that to, to like, say that Homestuck is ruined or gross or bad or anything like that. But what this thing is doing is different than what it started doing um, on, on a visual level. So, so that's interesting to me. The, the second thing kind of lining up with what you just said, you know, about these purposeful callbacks that are there to be callbacks, the, a bunch of pieces here, especially with the starting with Hussey being revealed in the fourth wall, that... That that whole section is this kind of like uh, meta move, mm-hmm. which is and, and it, it keeps jumping upward, right? So it's like Hussey responding to the fan theories that Lord English is Hussey. Mm-hmm. Oh, guess what? That's not true, mm-hmm. and it's it's not true to the extent that um, they're going to make fun of it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not only that, but the entirety of like how Hussey accomplishes things is uh you know and makes this thing work is like not what you expect because there's like the the hussy dummy again right that like types and the way that that thing types you know this is on like 32 36 right right hussy uh, just to describe this panel like hussy mm-hmm. like the the character sprite is holding like a shittily drawn version of the same character sprite that is like badly animated that uh they can just like plop down at the keyboard and like the hands move and it types the recap well, but that's the thing is it's it, yes, but it's mm-hmm. not even badly animated because the panel zooms out to reveal the Photoshop like GIF creation frame mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from, you know, a pirated version of Photoshop from 20, 2009, <laughs> maybe. And I don't I don't think, you know, I, I've, I, I've been a regular Photoshop user since about that time. And I believe that this is like the previous version. This is maybe uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the uh, but right, we get the the image itself is someone manipulating a computational interface to go back and forth between two panels that creates the animation mm-hmm. of the thing, right? So it's an additional meta move, right? We are being shown the interface itself. Like every mm-hmm. layer all the way down is artifice, even down to what we would consider like diegetic, you know, the thing that's happening in the text intertextually, you know, the reuse of panels specifically. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the the whole apparatus is constant, constant, jumping up to meta commentary which makes sense because that's another i think the only other like real or i guess there are two other kind of bombshell things for me in this entire part of so that we read there's this which is like some of the strategies of this comic are now going to be abandoned 
to triple down on some of the stuff that's been hinted at so far, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being in the attic, riding Falcor and obliterating those bullies, <laughs> all that stuff, right? Like, those things are meta-commentary, and they're going to be part of the whole apparatus. And in fact, um, Lord English's manner and, it, and its stylings and the character's abilities to actually see Andrew Hussey as a character, those things are all going to compound onto one another. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Yeah. The thing that I did not mention in my recap is that Hussey, uh, whose voice is the narrative voice of the comic, uh, mm-hmm. after throwing Lord English's coat over the the fourth wall, <clears throat> and there's like a, you know, a shining blue interior, so it becomes like a blue screen of death joke on uh, the character's side, uh, uh, Hussey's uh, narrative voice is like describing what's going to happen next, and then like offhandedly says to Jade, uh, you can't even hear me or something like that, right? Like is directly addressing the character like uh, in in the meta commentary. Yeah, it's like I'm whispering so you can't even hear it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, right. There, There is a definite demonstration now that these are not like separate spaces or, you know, like hermetically sealed things that kind of comment on one another. These are contiguous with one another in some kind of visual um and communicative way you know the relationship between the original homescut kids and the character of ah is the same as the relationship between the original homestuck kids and the trolls mm-hmm. um you know at least schematically there so that you know that's that's a pretty big i that's i don't think that's been like unthinkable and i think probably people who are reading along make that assumption but that is written into the text now that's very very clear mm-hmm um, the other thing is I, I know you want to talk about is Therese's explanation of uh, German idealism. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the other thing, uh, it, you know, we'll talk about that. And then the other thing is all these murders at the end, yeah. which uh, called it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Never been so happy to see a bunch of kids get murdered. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. uh, what a. Uh, what a weird thing, yeah. but I don't know. I don't know where you want to go from that. Well, uh, just to address um, a couple of things that you said. So uh, on the the issue of like panels and text, uh, this is actually a form spring response that comes up in uh, chronologically or historically with the next chunk of reading. But it's, I think, useful to talk about here because of uh, you bringing up this idea. Uh, uh, Hussey talks about on form spring. Uh, what they consider to be the the real benefits of this format. Um, I'm just going to read this. The real haymaker of this format is being able to deliver any quantity of text below the image that I want. Well, actually, back up just a little bit. Uh, The single panel thing um, they find very interesting, right? With each panel given focus, they demand attention and can have more power individually and create more surprising statements as navigated through. This is true even if one of my panels is literally just me scribbling bullshit all over it. Um, so, uh, they, their sense here is that, uh, these sort of still images that we get, uh, when there are these long conversations, um, and these pictures end up just being like the characters kind of bopping around, like wherever they are, right? Like, uh, John walking around the battlefield or something while talking with another character and sort of like looking at things on the battlefield, but, uh, underneath, we have this really long conversation going on, and Hussey says, uh, this format uh, can deliver any quantity of text below the image I want, anywhere from zero to 100,000 words. I can fit entire conversations in one panel, which would require hundreds of normal comic panels to convey gracefully. 
Um, I always found dialogue-dense comics a bit off-putting, wherein all the dialogue is stuffed into a lot of ponderous bubbles crowding out the art. With this format, this is not an issue at all. Large volumes of text may coexist with the art innocuously, as if you are reading a true comic-slash-novel hybrid. So... So uh, Alan Moore is not name-checked anywhere in any of this? Mm. No, I don't think Alan Moore has ever come up. Which is, uh, I mean, this... We've talked about it already, but like Watchmen is written into this thing. Like mm-hmm. this is absolute, especially the way that like the time jumps and the sequencing work, right? You know, the the time skips forward, time skip forwards and backwards in that. We've already talked about, you know, in a much earlier episode, some of the um, shared panel stuff that's going on across time. But like this starts feeling like something like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or Watchmen or any of his kind of highly annotated. You know, pieces, but you know, there's parts of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen where there are half issues that are just text. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and crammed in 19th century style on one sheet of paper, words on a page. And it really, I actually made a note somewhere, maybe it was in, in the next piece we read for the next part episode, but um, somewhere in here I, I wrote, oh, this is, just, we are now just in like Watchmen territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I just can't, it feels like the mark of Alan Moore, even if it is like a, um, you know, daisy chain version of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, you know, uh, Hussey reading other people who are influenced by that. But also, you know, th- I guess something that is, I guess I have questions about that are unresolvable, maybe, is this is being output to such an extent that I don't know if Hussey has time to read other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like in a raw sense. Yeah. So, I that's interesting. I do not know. Um, and then on the metagags, Right, the, the sort of author inserts, uh, what is notable here kind of historically um, is that people are getting fed up with these. Like, uh, at oh. least in the Something Awful thread, anytime uh, a new kind of, like, hussy interlude starts, people are like, not this shit again. Like, the story should be happening. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, this may be happening to some extent on the official forums. In fact, it probably is. I would say that like almost every behavior exhibited in the something awful thread is probably happening on the official forums, just in like a different proportionality. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, so the, this is known enough, right? Outside of the something awful, uh, thread that someone sends Hussey a form spring saying like, Hey, I, I hear people get really fed up with these self insert moments. Um, don't you think that, you know, you would do a better benefit to the readers if you like made these optional or if they were almost like the sweet bro and hella Jeff tie ins where sometimes a sweet bro and hella Jeff panel will show up uh, below the regular panel. And if you click on it, it'll take you to the, um, comic for that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what, what if you did it like this? Mm -hmm. I'm Uh, sure the hussy responded really reasonably to this request. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read uh, a little bit of this 1000 word response. Uh, first of all, let's acknowledge that regardless of how immersed you are in whatever's going on, this is a story built almost entirely out of ridiculous gags. The preceding stories were too. Uh, Problem Sleuth warped the fourth wall in similar ways, and this is tradition, uh, through which, this is the tradition through which Homestuck was conceived and delivered. It's light, it's loose, and above, uh, most other considerations, humor prevails. 
But there are even more reasons than this. The entire nature of the story format is one of blurriness between reader, player, author, and character. It began with readers issuing commands to characters and me, the author, parsing them, and the character responding with action to both parties. It is at all times a fluid dialogue taking place between these story entities, and at all times the author's presence is quite palpable, even without the actual AH avatar present. The narrator's voice is pretty unapologetically my own, and I think that's clear to the alert reader. He quips and with the he quips with the player and the character alike, but it goes even further than this. As the story progresses, these player character roles become even more malleable. Characters in the story actually control other characters through the exact same text command vehicle which drives the whole narrative. The whole thing is utterly saturate, saturated with such meta qualities and picking out single generically impoutable author avatar as a deal breaker uh, is pretty petty. Uh, and then Hussey just like lists all of the ways in which this like uh, weird uh, dialogue influence mechanism has appeared in the story thus far with like characters watching each other and giving commands to each other and like having those things they're giving commands to respond and so on. Um. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what then is interesting about this, uh, is that, uh, how, how Hussey concludes is that even if you're of the mindset of never, never, never on fourth wall shenanigans, it's still beyond me how you couldn't see that if one and only one story format combo was to get free pass on this, it would be homestuck. Notice that, uh... How this concludes is just Hussey being like, hey, this this is a, a comic where this kind of thing happens if you don't like the uh, weird fourth wall uh, author insert stuff. Um, I don't know what to tell you, because here are all these other places where it's like working like th it's being thematically or sort of formally paralleled. And that's yeah, that's fine. Right. That's good. Like uh, it's good because I am noticing this stuff, too. Historically, I think it's very interesting. Uh, what is kind of really uh, not necessarily unusual, but notable about Hussey's response here is that Hussey can tell us um, that all of these things are in the comic. Hussey cannot tell us why they're in the comic or does not or want a, to. Or, yeah, yeah, or is uninterested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, what you just read is like, if I was like, hey, I didn't like that sandwich. And you said, well, you know, I put lettuce on it, and also there's bread, and also there's mayonnaise, and also there's salt and pepper, mm -hmm. and also there's fake ham, and also there's chicken, and mm -hmm. also there's a tomato, and you like food with all these other things in it. You like bread and tomato and ham and fake ham and, and mustard and salt and pepper and mayonnaise. What's your problem? Mm-hmm. And, and and if and my response is, I, I guess intended to be, well, I guess I do like the sandwich, <laughs> <laughs> right? It has all the things I like that appear in other places. I must like it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's a compelling, <laughs> uh, like response to someone's affective uh, response to your own thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that that's interesting. Uh, that. Uh, you know, it is it is absolutely possible. And this is one of the reasons where I think I kind of keep reading historically is I'm curious as to whether or not there's a why here. Right. Is is mm. Hussey kind of doing some sort of commentary or uh, is there is there something is there a point trying to be underscored with uh, this blurriness between author, reader, character uh, that is now being acknowledged? Right. Because clearly, clearly Hussey can read their own work. Right. Can notice these things. Um. Uh, and sort of notably, Hussey is also not incapable of being like, 
I'm up to something, don't worry, because that's what happens with uh, Kanaya getting killed. Um, b- hmm. Because there's there's uh, some fan outcry over this because uh, Kanaya is uh, a lesbian, basically, right? Lesbian coded. Uh, she's had hmm. kind of multiple clear like attractions to other characters, and they have all been women. Um, and she is like clearly crushing on Rose. And so the second that Kanaya gets killed... People are are raising kind of the alarm of like, hey, like there's like one clearly queer character in this story and you just fridged her. Right. Yeah. And uh, so Hussey gives a like people right into the forum spring um, actually in, in very like uh, polite. Well, I, sur- I assume Hussey actually got a lot of questions that they didn't publish. Uh, the one that they end up responding to is just like, hey, is is this some sort of statement on like queer characters or whatever? Like, was this an intentional fridging? And Hussey basically says like, you, sh- you should wait. Like, mm. right? Like, you should like, I, I'm up to something and you should wait because like, there are going to be further developments with this. Imagine I just put in some chainsaw foley. Ad break time, cutting the episode in half. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure the listeners would really appreciate it if I added some chainsaw sounds to the middle of the episode. Yeah, you gotta not do that. I know. People, I think you're I think you're scaring people with what you're using for the ad break. <laughs> I don't <laughs> understand this. That. I don't understand it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh my god, this is not how ad breaks are supposed to go. Uh it's gotta fade in. You gotta <laughs> fade the sound in and it's gotta fade out as well. Yeah. Uh, we're range touch. <laughs> you can, yep. uh, learn about everything we do, including, uh, uh, shows aside from Homestuck made this world. So things like game study, study buddies, where Cameron and I talk about books of academic game studies, uh, and just King things where we read through the books of Stephen King in publication order too much future, where we're talking about the fallout franchise, uh, all of these things and more can be found on rangetouch.com. You can also hook up with us at uh, twitter.com slash rangetouch. Um, that's where we'll, you know, post like links to updates to various shows. Uh, occasionally I post like uh, screenshots of really fun uh, something awful forum interactions that I see. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's some good bonus content there. Uh, you can find out all about the stuff that we do in those places. Uh, but all of that stuff that we do, that takes effort, that takes work, it takes time. And how do we justify the amount of time that we spend on these things? Well, it turns out it's money. Money. It's yep. money. It's money. money. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so uh, if you want to support the work that we're doing, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch and kick us a couple bunk uh, a couple bucks per month. A couple bunks. Couple bunks. Um, I need uh we need bunk beds. <laughs> Cameron Michael, and I Mike and I currently, yeah, we both currently Cameron, have a single Danny bed. And I. <laughs> <laughs> we all have single beds that are in uh, are kind of in the three uh, you know we've got quadrants in the room yeah and the the terminal is on <laughs> the single terminal we all share is on one quadrant and we all have a, a single single bed in uh, each of the other three quadrants and we need more space yeah we got we need we have to in the words of Step Brothers we have to have so much more room for activities uh-huh. and so we need to build a bunk bed yes. uh, but it's only with your contribution that we'll be able to buy our bunks. <laughs> 
we wouldn't even be making the show if it weren't for Patreon support. People really wanted this thing to exist in the world, and they uh, <clears throat> believed hard enough and also uh, materially passed us resources enough uh, that the show happened. Uh, so if you want to, to pitch in and help us like reorganize our room, uh, then you can just head over to patreon.com slash range touch. Uh, you know, just a couple bucks uh, really helps. Um, but if you go for like uh, anything above that, you'll get all sorts of various bonus content, $5 for the Just King Things bonus episodes, for example. Uh, $10 is the Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes where we've like watched some movies at this point. We've also read The NeverEnding Story uh, and talked about how all of these uh, sort of non-Homestuck texts uh, are influential in how Homestuck works or how it operates or even in kind of like its broader media setting. Um, that said, other things you can do to help us out, uh, you can go to your podcast platform of choice uh, and leave a review, a five-star review that helps uh, surface us in in like the algorithm or whatever the hell and uh, gets eyes on us and lets people know that that we're a, we're a cool and good show that folks should listen to. And if you uh, leave a five-star review, there is a chance that Cameron will read it on air like right now. We're going to do it. So I'm going to read this review. Uh, subject line. Academia, baby. <laughs> From Hessex Salians. This pot, five stars. you got to leave a five-star review otherwise. If you don't leave a five-star review, I definitely won't read it. <laughs> this podcast is indirectly responsible for me successfully convincing my professor to let me write a thesis on Riverdale. So thanks for that. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. I... I, I can understand how that happened, but it's interesting that is, this podcast is somehow responsible for it. Is the next show after Homestuck Made This World, uh, uh, Riverdale? Hold on, I got to come up with oh, the title. Oh, wait. Do we, it took a long time to come. come here's with, the thing with, is uh, that Homestuck Made This World. The, the best title for a Riverdale podcast is already taken. It's Sex Archie. <laughs> That's true. That Grant runs with, um, with his partner. <laughs> Check out yep. Sex Archie. <laughs> Yeah, you can check out Sex Archie, but uh, yeah. Anyways, that's a good one. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe we could do <laughs> Riverdale existed in this world after Homestuck made it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Riverdale, damn, did it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can say damn in a podcast, unfortunately. We could just replace but, uh, the A with a little at sign. No, because that will uh, make everyone's cars explode or whatever <laughs> happens with that other thing, right? It'll like you'll just see smoking uh, stuff coming out of uh, people's exhaust vents. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, thanks so much for uh, supporting the show. If you do, and if you don't, think about doing that. <laughs> thanks, and now back to the show. Yeah, that is interesting uh, because this is 2011, mm -hmm. and so like that kind of discourse is really on the uptick. Yes. Right. And it maybe has been for a, a, like a year or so now. I think 2010 is when, what I really associate with that. I don't know when like the Mary Sue was founded and like starts really blowing up, but mm -hmm. that's something that I really associate with the kind of expansion of that website, which is, um, you know, uh, pieces looking directly at, I, like obviously these things are in the, in the aether in a lot of different ways. And like they're part of discourse communities across the internet, but the, the the Mary Sue appearing uh, alongside some like latent stuff that was going in and maybe like thought catalog around the same time and mm -hmm. a little bit before, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm sure these are happening. I mean, not I'm sure these are definitely happening in like fandom hardcore spaces like on LiveJournal, you know, and had been for years. 
But I really associate the kind of broader, um, I don't know, discussions of these terms. Also, the kind of rise of Jezebel around the same time, you know, of like looking hardcore at pop culture phenomena and then using these kind of either fandom terms or academic terms to like speak to, you know, so fridging comes from uh, Gail Simone mm-hmm. um, in the early 2000s. And uh, but and so these words are used in a very particular context, but ne- then they just kind of become part of like the lexicon of how we talk about pop culture and media to the point where, you know, fridging gets used now. Um, you know, it's just like a word it, that doesn't have kind of a clear locus or invention. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so but but it's interesting that I guess I certainly associate 2010, 2011 with the kind of expansion and explosion of people using those, you know, specific fandom terms Mm -hmm. to describe these kind of uh, phenomena. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to see when the Mary Sue was was found. Well, let me know. I won't. Oh, okay. Let's see. 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Based on its rapid growth and high engagement in 2014, Abrams folded Geeko system into the Mary Sue. So, so the Mary Sue literally in 2011, 2012 is like exploding in popularity to the point where it's able to absorb other media property, properties. So, uh, or other journalistic, you know, outputs. So, mm. yeah, that mm. that aligns perfectly. Look at that. Look at my internet brain. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Oh, so speaking of Mary Sue's, yeah, uh, uh, Carcat imagines the Jade's kissing. This is such an, an interesting thing because it's like, uh, you, you know, Carcat's not quite a nice guy, capital N, capital G, mm-hmm. but he's a, a tell me your emotions guy. Mm-hmm. You know, let's have a let's have a chat after mm-hmm. he quits being such a rage gremlin. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he turns to this different kind of guy, but he's doing it. You know, this is a great moment of where the image and the text combine, right? He's doing this and he's being, you know, he's saying like, Hey, maybe you should cut your past version some slack because now you're learning about, you know, wh- wh- how you had to change. You mm-hmm. know, you had to go through a bunch of shit. I don't know what the philosophy of character development is necessarily there. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, but, and you should do that. But he's also, while he's saying all these like nice things, he's thinking, what if the two jades smooched? What if a dog jade and a normal jade smooched? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, like, you get the shot, like, the next panel is him, like, r- like uh, throwing his hand up above his head through, like, his own thought bubble to, like, disperse <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, he's rage gremlin then. He's doing yeah. it. Get out of there. <laughs> but I think that is, uh, uh, there. there's something, you know, we've talked about at the beginning of this uh, webcomic that, that Hussey is able to capture you know something uh, very interesting that's about like teen conversation, mm-hmm. and I think for the most part in the in the chat logs that has fallen out for me. These are now characters that don't seem tethered to particular kinds of like authenticness. Like mm-hmm. the the teens at the the tweens at the beginning feel like real kids talking. Mm-hmm. These now feel like characters in a melodrama talking to one another to further melodramatic plots. They're they're quite different in like style and tone to me. Um, and yet even in that, like, you know, Hussey finds a way to really interject something that feels like very authentic to a particular human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it really characterizes Carcat in a very particular way. Mm-hmm. As like, you know, as we know that like Carcat is just kind of like, I don't know, developing crushes left and right. Yes. Oh, poor Carcat. <laughs> He's yeah. having a hard time. <laughs> 
he doesn't know who he wants to crush on and in what quadrant. I was going to say, in fact, at this point, the only uh, kid that Carcat has not like expressed something toward or like had a hint of something toward is Rose. Yes. Yeah. Like he's basically worked through the roster. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So speaking of what you were saying about uh, these conversations, we can talk about this conversation between Dave and Terezi about uh, <laughs> the nature of reality. What what is happening here? So does this come back? I I think I need to ask you that question first. Mm-hmm. Does so what? Do you do you have a page number on that? Oh God, no! Because I just like uh, copied out the. Yeah, see, see that you did. I I think I do. Give me one second. Uh, thirty ninety seven. I I wrote the Teresi's idealist metaphysics in my note. Mm-hmm. Thirty ninety seven is where it happens. I believe. Yes, okay. Oh, did you have something you wanted to say there, or you just want to get the page number out? Uh, 30, it's on page 3097. Uh, yeah, I, I want to ask you, you know, just a straight-up question, because it's going to be important. So what happens here is that Terezi lays out, like, a theory of metaphysics mm-hmm. about, like, how reality is produced. Mm-hmm. Metaphysics meaning just, you know, very naively, like, the rules of the production of reality. Mm-hmm. And you can be like a hardcore materialist and say that has nothing to do with the mind, or you can be like a hardcore idealist and you can say that has everything to do with the mind and our ability to think it. And, you know, uh, depending on which direction you go in those, you might even say that it obliterates metaphysics. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you can get you can become a good old fashioned Heidegger. But, you know, all that said, I just you know, to restate the question, is this a thing that that keeps coming back up, Michael, over the course of Homestuck? Not only is it going to keep coming up, it's been coming up already. Oh, I hate that. I hate to hear yeah. that entirely. <laughs> I hate I hate to hear every part of that answer. <laughs> okay. Um it's always it's it's always going to show up in kind of like some weird forms. Uh and how it's shown up up until this point is mostly in jokes. Uh I've referenced some of them in the in the summaries, um, but particularly with like Aridin and like the idea that magic is fake. Mm-hmm. Right. And nothing can make magic less fake, blah, 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 blah. Um, the the here uh, there is a connection made by Hussey actually in the book commentary. Um, but just to like get on the table, uh, what is what is happening with Terezi, um, what she does uh, is she has she she engineers a situation in which Dave makes a choice, right? Whether to learn about God tier stuff now or later. Um, and when he, uh, what she, she says she's going to flip a coin and Dave has to choose like what the result means. And so it produces a split timeline where in one case, Dave, uh, chooses to learn later. And in another case, Dave chooses to learn now. And so the, the Dave that chose to learn now is the one who like goes forward or backward in time or whatever and ends up in this case where he's like sleeping on his quest bed and then the dave who decided to learn later uh the alpha dave right the dave who gets to live um this is this is like language that's going to become increasingly important there's an alpha timeline right a way that things are supposed to happen uh and uh there are deviations from that that get uh obliterated because the the alpha timeline is jealous right it it cannot brook any other timeline so uh 
the point that Terezi is trying to make to Dave is that it had nothing to do with her or her coin flip. It was entirely Dave's ideas, right? What he thought that sent him back in time uh, and in one case to die and another case to like possibly kill himself. Um, and this gets in uh, involved with like discussing Terezi's like in-game aspect, uh, like the character aspects, like what elements they represent, uh, because they're not just like so. John is is uh, breath, right? Air, windy things. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of these things are more abstract, and we learn that Terezi, her aspect is mind. She's a seer of mind, mm-hmm. and so uh, uh, Dave is trying to figure out like what the hell does that mean anyway. And she's she says that basically this helps her her aspect helps her understand this right that it is the choice that Dave made that resulted in the divergences of reality, um, and just to quote her here, if you see in your mind clearly and understand the power your thoughts have, then you understand reality while everyone else is running around confused and angry and upset because they think reality is something happening to them rather than something they are making every moment. With every thought. And then a little bit later, I am not psychic, but I have the sight seers are meant to have. It was my role to have it, to talk to people and see the tunnels and vortices in their minds and to understand the realities they would create if those thoughts lead to action. What the hell? Well, so I guess I guess the question here is, I got a two-parter for you. Mm-hmm. One, is this a belief system that Hussey asserts as true in the commentaries? You don't have to answer that yet. Okay. Second question, is this an accurate representation of the going understanding of metaphysics in the comic forward from here? Okay. Me- meaning, like, does Terezi have the right of it, or is Terezi making things up? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that's a very complicated series of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could ask a third one. Okay, go ahead. Why the chicken crossed the road? Oh, no. Because Got the chicken him. imagined it and made it real. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken was a doctor. <laughs> Shows you your biases. You didn't even think for a second that that doctor could be a chicken. Yep. Um, Got him. <laughs> so, uh... About a month before this uh, update, right? So uh, early in December of 2010, um, there is an interview that Hussey gives uh, with um, like the Stanford student paper, I think. Or no, it's the Stanford University Libraries. Uh, who some? I think there's like a, a an undergrad or a graduate student who's doing some sort of digital humanities work. Um, and <laughs> they were like, I got to interview Hussey. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, and one of the things that sort of comes out in that interview, and this this aligns with previous interviews that I've read uh, with Hussey that were about, like, a- around the time of Problem Sleuth, um, Hussey says, you know, the this is not a story, uh, this is um, actually the, the interviewer, Elijah Meeks, uh, summarizing Hussey's co- uh, comments in some way, but saying that this is not an, uh, a story that is trying to um, do heavy reflection on, like, philosophy and irony. Um, that it's just trying to be a good story. And this is also uh, how earlier interviews have gone, because Hussey has had a couple of interviews with regard to Problem Sleuth uh, in sort of like new media art, uh, like sort of website zines is I guess how I would describe them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, people who even webzines. Yeah, people who are like into like hacker culture and and how art, how how uh, the internet is changing art. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that Hussey says in those interviews, pretty consistently from about two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, is that there was no like. Uh, they did not set out to like be some weird avant-garde new media artist, right? It was like this was a forum game and uh, kind of done to do something. And then as it sort of developed, it's uh, sort of like almost naturally like spilled out into these other uh, sort of forms or modes. And it's like, you know, uh, basically uh, the the canvas was the Internet. Why not take advantage of it? Right. Mm hmm. Um, and it's just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, having a good time. I'm just telling a story. Um, now in the book commentaries, uh, here on, this is from page 403 of actually act, uh, uh, book four, um, act five, act one. Uh, this is during a conversation, uh, it's on page two, five, six, seven. It's a conversation that, uh, Kanaya and Karkat are having about, uh, like magic and kind of like, uh, is what we're doing in the game magic? And this is of course related to what Aridin is constantly saying, which is that, you know, magic is fake, even though, even though Aridin loves magic, he keeps saying that magic is fake. Um, Hussey says, uh, in the commentary here, <clears throat> Karkat's dissertation on magic is a pretty good summary of the ongoing tension between the realness slash fakeness attribute of magic throughout the story. We get pretty flippant about magic in Homestuck. It's just a word you can use to describe certain forces in the same way that you can use the word luck to evaluate certain outcomes if you're fixated on that concept. Uh, notice that this is the same conversation where Terezi is saying uh, that we were talking about before, where Terezi says like luck, which is the thing that Vriska is obsessed with, doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. It's all this kind of other thing. Um, if there's any deeper truth to sift from these semantics, it's an idea that the story keeps returning to, which is that the power of belief is the key to everything. Believing in things reduces their fakeness attribute. It's the force that shapes your reality, used to snatch personal meaning from the jaws of a cynical and nihilistic environment. Uh, so, like, there's one response to your question, right? Mm -hmm. Like... Hussey is ultimately saying, like, yeah, no, this is this is a theme of the comic. This is in some way what the comic is about. Um, hmm. it, it is so deeply impossible to know when they're being serious or not. I know. And and I guess that part of that, I mean, uh, part of that is like some scampery going on here, right? But I guess the other thing here is that this is showing up so often in this kind of like push. This is tied into the, like the, the characters are just doing whatever they're doing stuff that we've talked about before. You know, they're their own kind of. Um, entities that that Hussey is just like you know responding to mm-hmm. um, so I guess that that is all of a piece you know I, I think we have to take some of this as being flatly you know just like the operating logic the Hussey is operating within even if that is not what Hussey believes right because mm-hmm. um, I get those can be two different things those are that is the rule set that that Hussey has set out that this universe operates within um, but also, it's just like warmed over Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. which which was warmed over Harlan Ellison, <laughs> right? I mean, to the yeah. extent that the game, I don't know if that was in the original American Gods uh, intro or if that was like the, for the paperback print or whatever, where Gaiman literally says, "Yes, I took this from Harlan Ellison." Mm-hmm. Um, 
so uh, th- that's just it's really interesting to me that this is like it's a lot of rules stacked on top of some just best-selling fantasy work from the time. Mm-hmm. Like, it, in the way that Harry Potter here is being very referenced, like, visually, conceptually, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, something like American Gods is, like, in this. And, like, Gaiman's work in Sandman, too, also has that same, you know, logic behind it, that belief powers, um, pow- you know, powers the world uh, and mm-hmm. the entities that have, uh, you know, effectiveness in that world. But that that's not surfaced at all. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's no Neil Gaiman character in here. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Th- so, I mean, this comes up uh, multiple times in the book commentary. Uh, in, in the most recent reading, actually, it comes up again uh, with regard to Aridin because Hussey pops in to say, like, it's because this is when Aridin has, has done his switch over, right? He's he's abjured magic forever, and now he has a science wand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you're saying, like, Harry Potter is being very clearly referenced. Uh, like, the science wand that Aridin has is a, like, actual, like, toy Harry Potter wand. Uh-huh. That uh, Hussey is like cut out of a, you know, product listing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what Hussey says with regard to Aridin in sort of the latest reading and some commentary is that like Aridin has basically like, there is a force that structures your life and Aridin has just decided to call it science instead of magic. Right. So he's like throwing all of his belief behind the science thing. And now he's going to see where that gets him. Um. Like, that's the thing that he's using to give his life significance. Also, just to quote from from uh, our old friend Grant Morrison, uh, everyone does magic all the time in different ways. Life plus significance equals magic. Yep, that's good old, that's that's Grant's good old-fashioned chaos magic. Right, so, so there's this uh, weird question. You say, right, we... How much does Hussey sort of like back up any one of these positions? Um, and we, we can't know. We don't know. But like it's it's weird to have uh, these interviews saying like, well, this isn't really like trying to get into anything. It's just a good story. Even the form spring responses saying things like, oh, this is just it's it's this is a humorous story. This is a story built out of gags. It's funny. Um, and at the same time, the form spring is going to like lecture you about how you are appreciating art wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here between kind of, uh, I don't know, Hussey giving this interview or these interviews saying that this is just a story and then Hussey writing kind of this commentary. Uh, something does seem to have shifted. This is uh, a, a thing that I gestured at in our Neverending Story bonus episode where you can sit down and read the Neverending Story and get a clear sense of like what that story is trying to teach its young reader mm-hmm. about yeah. something very similar, right? About the power of like the imagination, not not straight up like idealism um, in this way, uh, but something about like the power of the imagination and how to like cultivate it and, and uh, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh here we're getting something similar, but it's not about just your imagination, right? And sort of like, what do you do when you sit down and you read a book? It's about how do you structure reality? And it's hard not to feel like, um, even if this is like, even if this is just a perspective that is being put forth fictionally, say, with this one character, with Terezi, right? This is how Terezi apprehends things. Yeah. It still feels like something is being communicated here, right? Like there, there's a like whether or not uh, the comic overall endorses this uh, view of the world, um, that in and of itself is a statement, right? It is it is trying to say something about that view of the world, even if it doesn't endorse it. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's just a lot of energy put into it, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, in the way that this kind of gets young adult novelly, I mean, we've talked about that a lot, but it, it's just accelerating, you know, mm-hmm. we, we get, I think it's, is in the next episode where we get just like long things of Riska you mm-hmm. know, having emotions uh-huh. on the thing. Yeah, that's coming up. Yeah, so, you know, all of that stuff, we'll talk about that in the next part of the episode, but the, uh, you know, so it gets really, I would say, like, Hunger Games level of, uh, or even Twilight level of, like, we are going to sit with these emotions for a long time, which I, is fine, like, I'm not saying that to be critical of that, because I think that's a crucial part of this, like, uh, the affective mode that this kind of work does, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is the, what, I've used this word a million times, right, but it's what the young adult novel in uh, young adult fiction in a general sense, borrows from melodrama, right? Mm-hmm. Like, feelings are externalized. They mm-hmm. are made apparent and clear. They run into each other. That is the source of drama and the source of, like, attachment to those characters. So, like, I, I'm not saying any of this to be critical of it, but just to kind of put the cards on the table. But the interesting thing there is that if that's the case, you know, not if that's the case, but that's the case. Like, all of these characters are highly uh, involved in a melodrama. Then the metaphysics that exist behind that as the backdrop of that me- uh, melodrama is that those feelings and their kind of perceptions of reality are the only things that matter, mm-hmm. which puts you in a weird spot, right? Because you can have a melodrama with it. And this is what we would call like an idealist mode, meaning that mm-hmm. mind makes world. You know, that's probably anyone who has any uh, understanding of idealism, probably very frustrated to hear me say that, but that is, that is the most convenient and easiest <laughs> way of saying it, which is our perceptions and our kind of uh, capability of to think the world produces like capital W world. It produces like the, the habitus that we have within our material circumstances, which are ultimately subordinated beneath, um, you know, the way we apprehend them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be literally you know, the furthest extreme is literal. The material world does not matter and is, in fact, warped by our perceptions. Mm-hmm. And it could be kind of a soft version of that, which is that the material world obviously exists, but we only have certain perceptions within that world. And so then, therefore, it really doesn't matter what exists beyond it um, because we only have certain perceptions of it. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a kind of like a little perceptive bubble within the kind of broader reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the the difference is there is that if you're a hardcore materialist and you believe that like the material of the world that is the thing that matters, then other people have like full agency, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. like if if you're in a melodrama and you're in a materialist melodrama, um, ultimately your perception of the world is going to run into someone else's perception of the world, and there will be strong friction there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, sometimes people got to feed themselves. You know, that's running into material. Um, you know, uh, drop a rock on your foot and tell me the material world isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I forget which Greek person said that, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so there's that, but then there's like the flip side, right? Which is that if we have something like what we have here, which is a strong idealist melodrama, then, <laughs> then, y- then you have a contest of wills mm-hmm. and beliefs between oppositional people. Yes. So the thing that matters is not like the arena that you live within, but the thing that matters is how powerful are your beliefs in contest with the opposition. Mm-hmm. Your love for someone can overwhelm someone else mm-hmm. within the metaphysical idealist reality that is being given to us by Therese here. Mm-hmm. That, that, Michael, I can love you so hard that it will make you love me. Mm-hmm. 
that seems weird. That seems yeah. bad to me. That seems mm-hmm. like not a great uh, way of, of addressing the world. It seems like it puts you in a bad spot mm-hmm. where uh, questions of agency have to do with willpower and the ability to subordinate others and dominate others via your belief systems rather than it has to do with how you navigate the world in between you. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I mean, what really, what really uh, hit me, um, I'm reading the quote here, this is from Terezi, quote, because they think rea- people are angry and upset because they think reality is something happening to them rather mm-hmm. than something they are making every moment with every thought. Mm-hmm. And like, look, I just, you know, I, from, from a character perspective and, you know, going out a scalar level from like a fictional perspective and then going out a scalar level to like my actual understanding of metaphysics, right? Like I'm, I'm a Ray Brassier materialist. The world is already dead. Yep. <laughs> right? Like, I'm sold on something so oppositional and different to this that, uh, you know, I can't even, like, align myself with this. But I think there are some real issues that you run into um, if you take this as an operating logic for the world. And I guess we're going to see it go there. That's why I asked you the originating question. Are we going to have to deal with this forever? Because I think that takes you to some really weird, I'm going to say it, Michael. Mm-hmm. Some Gnostic places. Gnostic <laughs> nonsense places. Hard pass. Capital H, capital P. Well, I mean, to to uh, assuage you, Cameron, uh, a little bit, um, uh, I agree. And uh, this is this is one of the reasons why historical Michael keeps reading Homestuck is I think um, I'm not a, I'm not as hardcore of materialist uh, at this point. Um, historically that I think I am now because uh, I, like you, I've read my Brassier and like I, I'm kind of persuaded by that, right? <laughs> um, and what's going to be very interesting is I think we are going to get to parts with Homestuck where we can start explaining some of his ideas with this comic because the thing that really is like philosophically interesting to me about what's going on here and what's going to continue to happen is that Homestuck is a comic that uh, I think is going to kind of truly maybe try to assert the um, uh, the the power of feeling and imagination and emotion and how like these things can determine reality. And simultaneous with this, it is also going to be constantly undercutting itself. Hmm. Right. It is it is like self oppositional in a way. Um, And like I'm like here I am. Right. I'm the materialist Homestuck fan, Uh, like trying to figure out, is this thing uh, trying to communicate a sort of like idealist way of looking at the world or is it uh, criticizing that way of looking at the world? Right. And I still don't quite know where the comic itself comes down, even though I know where I come down and where my reading of this comic comes down. So sorry for the spoiler to the end of things that I just gave you um, about where my reading of Homestuck might end. Unfortunately, Uh, Michael, I have to report to you that you wrote a whole article about it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the thing about that (laughs) that I that I definitely read at the time and had no understanding for and still don't remember. So I have not revisited that. That's thank you, Cameron, for that wonderful input of reminding me of an article that I wrote Mm -hmm. and also that you don't know what the argument was. Well, no, I remember the broad structure of the argument, but I don't because you get into some details there Mm -hmm. and I do not remember the details because I read it whenever those came out. That was like, what, three, four years ago, something like Mm -hmm. that. And yeah. uh, and I've thought repeatedly, oh, maybe I should go back and see that, see the preview of, uh, uh, you know, of Michael's argument. A review, I guess it would be. Mm-hmm. 
but I think that would probably spoil this thing for me. Well, it would, and it also wouldn't be my full argument. Um, mm. Developed Michael is log on, logged on. Additional Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the article was, it's called, you know, How Homestuck Defined uh, What It Means to Be a Fan Online. Uh, yep. It was on Vice Games. Um, you can Google it and find it if you want to read that. Um, but that article was written after the epilogues posted. And the epilogues are kind of my projected endpoint for this show that will kind of end with a discussion of the epilogues. Because the epilogues for me are really what, like, lock my reading into place. <clears throat> not because, uh, and we'll get into these questions of, like, canonicity and whatever. Um, not really for that, but because the epilogues are extremely useful for making uh, points of critique about Homestuck as a project that I had been wanting to see from the beginning. <laughs> mm. Um and I can't get into that because uh, it's a it's a short article written for, you know, Vice Games. Uh, and that's not what people are, are coming to, to hear about. And so that article is me in a different mode. That's me after having read the epilogues thinking like, holy crap, like um, if I had to explain to someone why on earth would you have read Homestuck, right? Someone who had not touched it at all. If I had to give you just like a little, you know, a uh, uh, snapshot summary like what was this thing what was so exciting about it um and what what uh was it that made people like participate in it like how would i communicate that how would i give kind of my perspective on that so it's uh really me being um very positive on kind of the whole thing and not being able to get into kind of the weird like self-critique that i think this object is either doing intentionally or at the very least capable of um mm. and wouldn't you know it it turns out a podcast where you get to talk for two hours <laughs> is a really good place to have those conversations mm -hmm. it's true um so yeah uh, uh you know put a pin in that we'll we'll uh revisit this uh issue of like uh belief and imagination and so on uh what do you think of the most important character in homestuck <laughs> you know i like that clown <laughs> You know, I don't know why. Little preview. Maybe you can give me. Well, God, I guess we can talk about it in the next part of so. That's fine. I don't really know why Gamesy is doing the things Gamesy is doing. Okay. I'm well, I'm, a, I'm confused about that. I'm actually at the point where I'm confused about several things that occur just in the plot of the thing, and I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I actually mentioned this in the last part of so. Um, you know, uh, but to reiterate that. I'm finding the animations to be extremely confusing. Yes, the uh, uh, the wake animation where we see the resurrection of Aradia is yeah. so confusing. Yeah, I don't like, uh, like I said, I, I really do think like the imagistic imagination here is really atrophied. Mm -hmm. You know, that I, I just don't think that Hussey is as interested in like doing stuff, you know, in a basic way of like doing the imagistic work. I think that they are, more interested in writing the characters which is fine but that changes like the experience of the thing in a significant way i just really do need the, the summary to help me figure out exactly what's going on here um well the... uh, it's, it's, oh. speaking to this <clears throat> in the summary and this is like sort of the not that maybe the first time i've done this but like sort of the first time i remember this kind of thing happening in the live reading and knowing i like preparing to do this knowing i would have to do it in my summary uh that whole thing that i explained where like aradia's dream self is in a crypt at the center of the moon and it got incinerated and that's how she was uh, resurrected as god tier that is not a thing that is explained at 
all in this chunk of the comic, and it is not a thing that is going to be explained in as many words for a long time. The only mm. reason people know, like, everyone is confused when this Flash comes up, because they're like, what the fuck was that? Like, how did that happen? Why did Aradia have a dream self? Why was it in the moon, I guess? Why was it on a quest bed? Uh, it turns out this is just another game rule, that uh, if a player is dead before they enter the game, their dream self is interred in, in the moon of their particular moon right or in the moon of their particular planet mm -hmm. okay in the moon of the moon which yes. we all know is in the center of a planet uh-huh um uh so the only reason people get clarity on this is because they take the form spring and they're like andrew what the hell just happened and hussy explains like oh well when a person's dream self dies it gets taken to the crypt at the center of the moon of course, we all know that. Right. So in my summary, I had to take kind of extra contextual uh, material just to like be able to describe for someone what is happening. Hmm. <laughs> well, so I, you know, I guess the most important character, too, is the way that I didn't know this was gamesy. Like, obviously, it's gamesy. Mm hmm. But while reading through this, I was like, who the hell is this? <laughs> who could mm -hmm. this be? But obviously, it's gamesy. Um. The, so there's this, but also this is Gamesy in the future, right? Yes. This is, yeah, because Gamesy doesn't have the uh, scratches across his face yet. Yes, right. And there is a timer that we've been, our attention, mm -hmm. the narrative has drawn our attention to this like timer that's counting down to some event, right? To a zero event. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever is happening when that timer hits zero, uh, Gamsey is watching Jade's lab uh, explode with First Guardian energy at that moment. Yeah. Is this when it's exploding when Jade prototypes herself? Or is this no. a different time? That is, so the, the implication there is that Gamzee is at the zero mark, uh, and he is watching something that happened earlier in the timeline. Got it. Okay. Okay. Right. Got it. But he is from further along in the timeline, from where we are. Like yes. In the phenomenal reading. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yeehaw. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do with uh, that. That's some real big foreshadowing. I'm presuming that's going to come up again. But I guess we should. Oh, okay. So number one, I don't care about any of the like. What are they called? The exiles. Oh yeah. I'm over it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm so done with this. I don't care. Okay. I mean, I, don't I mean, have... is that is I, that I... a feeling? Is that a feeling for other people? Because like. Who could care? <laughs> uh, I, I would say what is happening um, largely is that there there are people who are like Exile fans. And I think actually at about this point or fairly soon, the Exiles get their own theme album. Um, hmm. I haven't talked a lot about like the, the music that's been coming out. But of course, uh, Homestuck has been putting out music regularly on Bandcamp throughout this entire time. Uh, volume six of kind of the main run of albums gets released uh, either during this chunk of reading or next chunk. Andrew Hussey does the art for the cover. Um, there's some weird like uh, uh, like uh comments made about like it, it's a picture of john uh and people make weird comments about like the uh, uh physiology of john and like uh hussy gets to yell at people about how they don't appreciate their art um some more mm. um 
So that's all going on. The Exiles get an album. The Felt got their own album. I mentioned that one because it's actually probably my favorite themed album. There's just a lot of cool songs. There's a there's an Eggs and Biscuits song that is so good. Um, <laughs> uh, because those are the guys who like uh, have the the egg timer in the oven. Mm-hmm. And so they're constantly like replicating and multiplying. So that song uh, will like play a little bit reverse and then play some more with like additional instrumentation added until it's like a huge like carnival mess. Good stuff. Great. Sounds like music to me. <laughs> uh, uh, people are curious about what purpose the exiles are going to serve in kind of the long run of the story. Um, and there are also people who I think are kind of exile fans who feel like the exiles are being pushed out. Right. E- even the the little bit that we're getting here is stuff that uh, they're they're like, oh, I wish we had more. I wish we could go back to kind of the, the other thing to, to think about here is that in many ways, the exiles become emblematic of like uh, a simpler time in this story. <laughs> yes, of course. Right? <laughs> um, so there are people who are like into the exiles. Uh, there are people who wish they saw more of them. But I do think kind of broadly, uh, the exiles are not. um People aren't thinking as like people are thinking more often, man, what's going on with Rose? I wish we could get a Rose scene next than they are thinking like, I wish we could get another scene with PM. Yeah, I wish we could get a long thing where the mayor turns into Jack Noir in his dream space. What's going on with that? Very interesting. In the book commentary, uh, Hussey says that this is this is something that could have been cut. Yeah. Like, of course it could have. Right. It's it's just <laughs> you're describing 60% of this comic. It's it's so fascinating to have this comic in front of us and like have the moments where Hussey will admit, like, yeah, this this bit of information was really unnecessary. Um so yeah, this this dream sequence happens. Um, and what it establishes for us from a character perspective is that uh WV is somehow being positioned as the person who is going to take on that ring and have to fight Jack Noir, uh, and he doesn't want to do that, right? He's got anxiety about it. And mm. so Hussey in in the commentary says what I just said, right? Reads the scene for you. Um, and says, like, this is this is good. This is why like why it should still be here, but also kind of in in big picture, this is something that was maybe not as necessary right i it was done because it it felt interesting to do at the time mm-hmm. um and like weirdly enough uh hussy at this point also gestures forward to act six and oh. suggests a bunch of stuff that could have been cut from act six that that is there mm-hmm. that we'll have to deal with mm-hmm. um and like I said, it's it's interesting that Hussey so rarely will like back off of an idea that it's yeah. it's almost notable when they're like, yeah, this this could just be cut like this doesn't need to be here. Another thing, actually, I should point out, we've gone off book. Uh-oh. Uh oh, one of the things that I have been doing throughout this show is like the 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 episodes, not the part episodes, but the episodes have been structured according to the books. Um, uh, the published books, mm-hmm. uh, this changed in the last part episode, uh, the next to last, uh, book ends just a few pages before John gets resurrected. So I actually pushed us a little bit ahead of, uh, where, where that book ended in order to end that, uh, part episode. And now we are actually in the last book, what will be the last published book, which does not extend to the end of act five, act two. So before the act two. Or yeah, so before five two ends, uh, we are going to to lose the book commentary. So I just think that's interesting, something to to mm. keep in mind for when it happens. Rip, yep, rip, rip to the. 
you want to talk about all these people getting murdered? Yeah, yeah. So uh, everyone gets murdered. Not everyone, but a bunch of everyone's. Oh, sorry. Megalovania. Oh, yeah. Megalovania shows up in... in well, it, that's that's relevant to the murders. <laughs> yep. That's all we have to say about it. Look, it's in here. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I You know, it's music to me. Yep. People love it. They're like... I mean, uh, Megalovania came out on an album uh, before... I think it came out mm. on album five. And people were like, damn, I can't wait until Megalovania gets used in a flash. And here you go. It is. It's it's where Vriska kill, kills Tavros. Spoilers. I already spoiled it. <laughs> the uh, yeah, so um, you know I can't. I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't really understand why everyone's getting murdered. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, I do I, at a basic level. I do. Uh huh. Because it's what I said. Yes. Right. You need to start <laughs> trimming the cast of characters. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, like, in a practical and pragmatic way, from a character motivation standpoint, is it just that there's uh, tomfoolery af- afoot? <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. Uh, if you were to read the Formspring responses at this time, uh, Hussey is also saying that none of this is to trim the cast of characters. <laughs> okay. All of these are significant and plot relevant. Um so, like, I mean, uh, Tavros and Vriska have been set up as foils anyway, right? This is kind of like they, they're mm-hmm. they're kind of opposed to each other, and uh, uh, like they're they they both mirror each other, especially in the last part episode with like Vriska interfering with the kids' game and Tavros kind of doing the same thing, but in a way that everyone like kind of yells at him for. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then they like Tavros has said like, "Oh, I'm going to like stop Vriska because she's evil." <clears throat> and now we have this kind of moment of confrontation where she just like efforts effortlessly murders him. Uh, and so that kind of, I think at least makes sense in, in the, in the context of like Riska being this character who is like escalating everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like she is serving a kind of like weird metatextual function there. Uh, and of course in the thread, this, like this ignites Riska chat, like nothing else. Right. <laughs> like uh gotta, yeah yeah people so it happens and then there's like a page and a half of people just being like ha 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 suck it tavros um Oof. and then of course this like uh th- th- as more people come in and join the conversation this starts diversifying uh with people being like well that's kind of like frisk has finally kind of gone that step too far right she's finally murdered someone to which people reply she murdered someone before she murdered aradia <laughs> like yeah. this is like this is not a new thing for Vriska. yeah uh but uh the other thing that people point out is that like uh Tav, like, well, not point out, I guess. One of the discussions that starts happening is, did Tavros experience character growth? <laughs> By being murdered? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, well. Because uh, he tries to take it, he, he like, has this moment of, like, oh, yeah. I've got to take charge of my life and myself. Uh, yeah. Consider here, of course, this whole uh, discussion that we've already had about uh, Therese's outlook on life, right? Uh, yep. Tavros is doing the thing you're supposed to do, uh, which is uh, have that moment of, like, uh, uh, affirmation or belief. This is what I need to do, and I am going to do it. And what does it get him? It gets him murdered. Uh, now, 
oh, there's one way of reading this, which is that like Variska just believes harder than him and so therefore has an advantage. Mm-hmm. Vriska believes in Vriska much more than Tavros can believe in Tavros. Yes. There's a hard cap on, yeah. on how much Tavros can believe in Tavros. For sure. <laughs> um uh but then uh like the other thing to consider is that what what I said earlier, right? Is this not a critique of the entire idea that all you need to do is believe? Because mm-hmm. if the person who believes the hardest ends up being the person who can murder most efficiently, we've got a problem. Yeah, that seems seems to be seems to be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, especially because what uh, Tavros also can't believe hard enough to murder Vriska in a mercy killing, right? Mm-hmm. Right, like at the very beginning of this. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, yeah, we have that whole thing where Vriska, like Vriska, this is the other thing. It's like Vriska is trying to believe Tavros into being something he is not right. Being Mm -hmm. someone who is capable of like mercy killing her uh, at her behest, right, with her assurance um, so she can ascend to the god tier. Right. Because she's got all these power gaming strategies going on. Um, But like that's pretty messed up. Right? <laughs> like, it, it, obviously, it's a fictional uh, uh, conceit, right? These are fictional characters. But, like, just looking at the pieces as they lay, uh, you know, Vriska's idea of, like, oh, I need to help Tavros grow and develop as a person, which, of course, is an impulse that she's, like, remapped onto John at this point. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, uh, like, in order to help Tavros, like, grow as a person, I need to help him become more bloodthirsty. <laughs> Yeah, there's something really cool about the way that Vriska is written, especially in that that open opening section mm-hmm. uh, of this like partisode where she's trying to get Tavros to to execute her so she can become a superpower person. Mm-hmm. There's something really interesting there about like you just said, right? Like Vriska understands the rules of the game or believes that she understands the rules of the game and is power gaming those very rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so there, I, you know, I think. I'm I'm pretty side eye about many of the places in this comic so far where it's been like, Hussey's just uh, you know laying out the rules and watching them go. But Vriska really is a case of like, of a character kind of being able to uh, meta reflect on what the situation is and then applying a power gaming mindset to like character development. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I think I mean she's like morally horrible right mm-hmm. like just like the worst the worst person on the planet but like from a uh you know a schematically a very interesting character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh so yeah th- that's kind of like our our first uh murder and then we get i mean you'd ask the question like what's up with all these fascists well we get one of our first answers which is that turns out eridan's a a, a fascist like yeah, and, why is he doing all these murders? Why is he, he obliterating everybody? I still don't know. I don't really understand. So there is a an explanation here that you could like drill down into, and it requires you to talk more about those class aspects uh, that we uh, mentioned earlier, where Terezi is the seer of mind. Aridin is the prince of hope. Um, I wish everyone could see my face right now. <laughs> I know. Um, oh, good God. And so, like, uh, what is, I think, a common, like, fandom reading here is, like, to understand Aridin within the context of his aspect, right? He is a—and and there's this idea also very common, and this gets, like, stated in the text and by various characters and in various ways, is that the game of Spurb uh, assigns you aspects that are challenging to you, right? Something mm-hmm. you need to learn about yourself. Okay. So the reading tends to be that Aridin got assigned hope— 
um, in a way that challenged him, right? Because he was like self-centered, right? He was very convinced of his like own abilities. Uh, and, uh, he, he, what Aridin needed to learn was a, was something, some lesson about, uh, the power of, of hope as a force, uh, and sort of the, the affect of that, right? He needed to change and develop as a person. And instead he sort of like flaunted, uh, the, or rather he inverted, right? We might say. Um, his aspect, uh, in order to be like, oh, no, no, like being the whatever of hope means that I am the destroyer of that thing. Right. So he, he has like gone full nihilist. Here's, here's the, here's the follow on to this. Uh, a lot of these discussions happen in the fandom, um, about these, uh, aspects and classes and how these like determine facets of the character, which I'm going to say is really interesting. If we're going to consider this as an idealist work, what's going on with all of these, uh, weird cosmological, uh, uh, frameworks that somehow get baked into you that determine, uh, <laughs> what you're doing. Well, I mean, that that's easy, right? It's just, it's an idealist universe in which uh, the individual doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, it's easy to square that circle, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's an idealist universe in which, uh, you know, I mean, it's very similar to contemporary, um, you know, popularity around uh, the zodiac signs, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it's. Uh, Mind makes world, and mind makes world in such a way that you are born into a structure that just produces your thing. You can do that and be an anti-materialist. So, like that—that that to me is not that one of the least hard things to resolve. Mm. That also, like, is almost a system that is um, it. It obviates a lot of responsibility, I guess, too. Right, where mm-hmm. it's like, um, and which you know, in a strongly neoliberal world in which we are preached to constantly that everything is a uh, you know maneuver of personal responsibility and individuality, and every choice you make is one in which you are uh, a active participant, which we know is not true, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of our choices are forced choices. Um, you know, we live within networks of domination and subordination. You know, to, to quote Kathy Weeks. And so, uh, so yeah, so like, you know, just saying, hey, there's a thing you're born into and you have to like respond to it and you have to live within some pretty strong strictures that you have no control over. That's one way of getting, you know, some uh, power back in your life, mm-hmm. right? To where you don't feel like, uh, you know, just a weather vane. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, that's going to create an interesting character situation for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's so that's how one of the things that Hussey says in, in the book commentary is that the the class and aspect stuff is intentionally kind of uh, suggested or like half formed uh, specifically mm-hmm. to allow the reader to fill in these blanks with their own imagination. Mm-hmm. Um I will also say that sort of like practically on the ground, one of the effects of this is that it means you have a text wherein a character doesn't seem to do thing or does things for extremely strange and unclear reasons. And then it is like the the effort of actually writing the motivation or like clarifying it gets foisted onto the reader, right? It becomes your responsibility to use your imagination to figure out how this thing actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's kind of what's going on there. Uh, and I will also say that in general, uh, I don't truck with like the class and aspect stuff. Um, mm-hmm. this is only going to become more important throughout the, the run of Homestuck. 
Uh, and I do not think it is helpful precisely because it is just hussy. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, me giving a, a, a sort of assessment here of just like why I don't like this. It feels like hussy uh, giving, uh, uh, putting out a structure or or like a, a, a plot contravance that allows the precise move that I just described, right? I can write something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but then you get to make it make sense. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of the reverse or it's the um not reverse but like the ultimate in game of the reader command yes rather mm -hmm. than creating a prompt that creates a bunch of different interpretations uh that you get to kind of cherry pick and and, and decide which one moves the world forward you know which one is the correct one or like the canonical one uh you create a situation that then evokes a bunch of prompts mm -hmm. what was the explanation for this or what was the condition that allowed this to be true um, you know, so it's a bunch of thens that people create ifs for, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, rather than ifs that create thens, um, I, which, you know, I, you know, it's the, it's the end game. Mm -hmm. We're in the end game now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this is how it is. So, so I, to take it back like a couple steps, then what you're telling me is that there is not an explanation for why Aridin is doing this other than like what the community decided is canonically true. I mean, there is an explanation in the sense that Aridin is an asshole. Um, and he decided to side with power, right? Okay. Did you, uh, how much of the like walk around flash did you do before this? Mm, I, I'm not completing those. Is that yes. maybe part of the problem? So this is, I was wondering if we're going to have this discussion this time or next time. Mm. Um, up until now, uh, the walk arounds have had no important character information in them. They've just been kind of like fiddly bits. Uh, yeah, they've been like characterization. Yes, right. Like uh, characterization rather than establishing character traits or like big yeah. plot developments. Yeah, for sure. Um, here in uh, specifically starting with this flash, uh, critical information starts being presented in the walkarounds. Oh, yes. Got it. Mm -hmm. got it. Maybe that's so that was maybe on me. Yes. And and I mean, I think this is an interesting formal problem that I'll talk about in a moment. But like what happens in that flash is that Kanaya is going to return to the core. If she try, if you try to leave that room, Aridin barges in and stops you. And you can talk with Aridin a whole bunch. And basically his motivation is that like uh, he, you know, it's pure nihilism, right? He thinks like basically there's no way that they can beat Jack. Um, so they might as well join Jack. So his plan is to like uh, sort of just side with the forces of destruction or whatever and then uh, yank the fairy out of this situation so he can go off and like preserve his uh, idealized troll aristocracy uh, in whatever like new world comes through uh, uh, Jack's endless destruction. Right. Hmm. Um it's just it's just that right like he oh. he was he was a guy who worshiped power and uh continued to worship power uh like right up until the time he turned evil so he could worship power some more right <laughs> well that makes a lot more sense yeah i yeah basically since so so much of those have been just characterization mm -hmm. i basically play around with them until i get bored so, but now I will begin to complete them. Well, and they're actually going to like fall out <laughs> very quickly too. Yeah. Um, but you know, this is this is what I think is the interesting formal question: is like, what do you do with the fact that we've only had these delivering? And I'm thinking here of like Homestuck as the finished object, because like there's a there's a segment of the listenership who um, is thinking like, well, that's just like Cameron. Who who doesn't even like this comic? Right, that, that this is this is like some form of our own listener response. Uh, that Cameron doesn't like the comic and he's not reading it with like the care and the attention that it needs. 
I'm not playing the little video game with the care and attention that it means. Yeah. I will. I will. I'm going to cop to that. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I like this comic. It's fine. Yeah. But that said, uh, like you made an accurate estimation of what these walkarounds were doing early on. And then that thing changed with no signaling. And so uh, what do you do when you have an object that is uh, like sort of folding in little critical bits of character information uh, into spaces that are actually designed in such a way that the uh, interactor reader, whatever, can ignore them entirely. Like this is a thing that i learned uh when i started making games right uh when i made start making all yeah. my twine games and like if you've played my games then you know that i uh tend to have like you know weird little secrets or like uh uh you know all like alternative possibilities that i that i build in um because that sort of thing is interesting to me but like one of the things that i immediately learned is that if you build a thing uh with like if you intentionally construct an object uh that allows the the object's interlocutor to uh miss or like skip certain parts of that object's content they're gonna do it and like their their subsequent reading which may be uh partial or not fully informed um like i mean it's on me, right? I designed the object that facilitated that response. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, yeah, in, in my um, uh, balance sheet, right, of like, where does, it, you know, I know about cultural studies. I've got a degree or two <laughs> that are associated with that, right? There's encoding and decoding. There's like, you know, the uh, the author function and the product of the author function and the way the reader reads the author function, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a material object there. There's a thing you engage with. And I think there's a push and pull, quite obviously, but there are affordances that are built into the object that determine part of the way that that is controlled. You know, that, that's something that we've had this discussion a few times on Discord um, where, you know, there, there are people who are big fans of Homestuck who really do believe that the end-all, be-all... Um, relationship i'm trying to find the right word but i guess relationship the de the determinant of what homestuck is is ultimately not it has no responsibility to a human being who created it mm -hmm. right like I, I, we've got some hardliners like that who who show up in the discord it seems like that's a, a fan opinion of this work and that's like perfectly fine if you do that but i think you have to be if that is your like political stance on how one reads something or if that's your kind of philosophy of how uh, creative works operate um then then i think you have a kind of hard question to resolve which i don't think is non-resolvable but it's a thing you really do have to address is like what is the material object then mm -hmm. like what is the ground from which the reader's response emerges mm -hmm. like I'm not getting Stanley Fish on this shit, but even Stanley Fish said, you know, you walk into the classroom and you find the the things written on the board, right? Mm -hmm. A human being wrote those those things, even if, uh, in and ultimately what gets produced in the reader community is not, um, uh, you know, responsible to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're I'm I'm gonna have to talk about Faulkner on this show at some point. I think so. Um, and I'm gonna have to talk about new criticism. I think uh -huh. because you know, new criticism, which is. Uh, kind of if if your belief is truly that there is no author at the other end of the line right you're holding a tin can and a string that uh only has responsible responsibility to the messages that come down it and never to whoever is on the other end of it the author is, is dead and i can uh you know sort of i, I can strategically adapt texts in the way that i want right uh, 
it is more, I, I, I mean, I will say this. The position that I've seen people hold around Homestuck, around what an author is, is more extreme than the author is dead. Mm-hmm. Like, Bart did not truly believe that the author was like, <laughs> like a, you know, like a person-shaped outline, <laughs> you know, that's a void, right? Like, the, the author does stuff and is not the final determinant of meaning. That's, that's Bart, right? For, for this, it's the author does things and we don't have to care about it at all. And it doesn't imagine, you know, the material circumstances in which things emerge don't seem to matter very much. All that kind of stuff. But, um, but that's all to say, right, that that has a parallel in American and uh, international liter- literary history. And it's called New Criticism. And there are various forms of it, right, that, mm-hmm. that go from the most extreme version version that I've often seen around Homestuck, which is that we don't have to care about anything other than the work. You know, and then the and the people responding to it produce really what the content of the work is, the readerly community, and then all the way to more, I would say, like soft versions of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the United States, that that literary opinion has a very clear history associated to it, and it has to do one of the strains of it, um, it, and some of the more extreme strains of it have to do with making sure that literary critics did not have to deal with William Faulkner's racism, mm-hmm. straight up. Uh, mm-hmm. As a Southern author, and that's you know emerges in the middle of the 20th century, which is not to say that that's what Homestuck is doing or Homestuck fans are doing or anything like that. But um, ideas about how we read things emerge in the world, mm-hmm. right? They are an ideology. They are a, a, a way that people think about the world. They don't spring from nothing. They spring from our material circumstances. Uh a form of viewing work, you know, an ideology about how we think or a philosophy of how we think about how to read that wants us to ignore material circumstances has some politics to it. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that, that we have to hold on to throughout the rest of this. And and I will walk through, um, I think it's called what, The Making of Faulkner's Reputation? I think so, uh, yeah. which is Which is a very famous book. We've talked about it on, actually, I think, uh, Game Study Study Buddies before. But very famous work that kind of walks through the political reasons why some literary critics needed to forget the material circumstances through which uh, Faulkner emerged and how that kind of exploded out of that into a whole strain of literary study, mm-hmm. uh, which very far down the line, <laughs> you know, um, uh, when we get to the early 20th century, informs a lot of different ways that people have been taught to engage with work, even though it has trickled through in a lot of different forms. Um, so, right, there's no direct line or any of this. I'm not saying that what the people in the Homestuck community are doing is what the people who are reading Faulkner are doing, but the reading strategy um, is designed to do particular things mm-hmm. and it's designed to function like a machine that produces certain outcomes, like not having to think about the author too much. And I don't think I'm sold on that. Yeah. And I mean, and if it's not clear, uh, that, that is an outlook that is antithetical to what this show is doing. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed in sort of the Homestuck fandom that, I mean, one is like, these are all people who are younger than me, right? More and more like younger people are like coming into the fandom and, and it's, and that's good, right? That's fine. Like that's the nature of time. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah. but one of the things that, uh, as someone who kind of watched this all happen, right? Uh, like one of the things that I thought was getting lost was 
is precisely like how active of a dialogue uh, this thing was between like the readership and Hussey and how uh, various things in the comic like day to day were responding to conversations that were being had on forums and on tumblers and like sort of debates that were happening in the fandom and like everyone knew that the responses were coming from someone. Um, And so like one of my big goals for this show was uh, and this is, you know, how foolhardy I am, uh, but kind of to like force Homestuck back into history. Right. Taking this object Mm -hmm. that is uh, in its narrative, constantly asserting that time isn't real and doesn't exist (laughs) um, and being like, well, actually, like here are all of the material circumstances that pre-existed Homestuck that it made use of. Here are kind of the emerging outlooks and the emerging kind of uh, Internet communities uh, that made it what it was and that it like reformatted itself in order to appeal to and tap into right that there was uh, a material and historical process by which this thing was made uh and when the comic ended uh surely like that that sort of the the main run of that uh process ended right um that the fandom didn't end it continued on and has continued to do its own things and there's been additional homestuck work uh but there was uh, a kind of performance Right. I I come out of a theater background in in performance Mm -hmm. theory. And one of the things that uh, you say in performance theory, and I'm borrowing this from Peggy Phelan, um, that performance is predicated on its own disappearance. Right. What makes a theatrical performance important or interesting is that when it's over, it's over, it's gone. It does not matter if you have like a video recording of it uh, or like an audio recording or pictures. Those are not the performance itself, right? They are traces of it. They are records of it. But the performance itself is gone. And so the original performance of Homestuck is gone, right? It's lost to history. And I'm kind of, uh, you know, tracing the outlines of this thing that has disappeared and that even in its disappearance uh, has left kind of reverberations of itself in, in the form of the object. Right. In the character dialogue, in uh, the way that as people continue to complain about the author inserts, the author inserts start increasing in frequency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a work that is constantly uh, that is obviously fan responsive. It, it is it is uh, supplemented heavily by its very creator explaining it mm-hmm. <laughs> both in the comic and external to the comic. Um, right. There, there are all these kind of traces of forums, culture or whatever. There was actually something in this part of I think that I've totally lost. Um, but right. Like even the Photoshop technology, right. Gets mm-hmm. brought into the thing. Um, gosh, there's, there's a, there's a narrative. I think it's in this one. There's a narrative sec- section where the narrator says something to the effect of like, you thought, oh no, it's when Hussey's putting on the, sorry. It's when Hussey puts on Lord English's coat. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, you all thought I was Lord English? Yeah. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. That, no, no, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right? So it's constantly doing these these kinds of things. And yet all of its kind of statements about the fictional world, right? Uh, the future is written in stone. You can't do anything about it. It's all paradox cycles, uh, paradox space. Um, that there's one narrative that will that will entertain a bunch of other options, but will ultimately destroy them because it's jealous. I think is the word you yes. used. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that uh, there's a there's a freight train coming, and you can do whatever you want to do while you're dancing on the tracks. But ultimately, the freight train's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so yeah, I think I think exactly right there. 
it's a thing. It is a work that is constantly trying to say that it can uh, do something other than what it's actually doing. It's thematizing the very problems that of its you know uh, material circumstances. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, no, I think you're right when you said that the purpose of the show is to kind of re put Homestuck in the world. Um, or, you know, uh, identify where the world is in Homestuck. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's it. And I think that, that, that goal of the show is going to get, e- is going to develop even more tense relationships with the content of the comic. Yes. Based on what, what I've seen in the, this part episode and what we're about to talk about in the next one. Mm-hmm. But in two weeks for the people who are listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, one final note from me. Uh, we get the form spring response uh, during this run where uh, Hussey lays out what like what Homestuck is supposed to look like from here to the end. Someone uh, writes in and says, you know, the final bus, the final boss of Problem Sleuth lasted, you know, six months, like half the comics run. Um, so like what's going to happen like and we now we're stuck in this like big act five act two kind of thing so it must be it, this must mean that act seven because i think by this point hussy has said that there are going to be seven acts uh that's going to be really wild and hussy says uh, my plan at the moment is to make act seven serve as pure wrap-up perhaps consisting only of several significant animations if that is the case then act six would function as the last quote-unquote normal act but you know how these th- things go plans can change reader plans did change um but at the time i just want to again putting homestuck back into history think about being in the middle of this and thinking like okay we're going to have act five act two um that'll end and then we'll have act six that'll be a normal act uh and in fact hussey says in a later form spring response i think that act six is going to be shorter than act five act two wow um so that's going to happen or rather like those are those are beliefs that people are going to operate under (laughs) yeah right those are ideas that people are going to have about the world um and that's not at all how this turns out we have an act six that lasts the entire run of the comic uh basically you know folded over on itself so uh yeah um any any final notes from you cameron i don't think so i i mean we will talk more in the next part episode about all these murders yeah i, I want to uh, run like a new maybe like little final segment by you uh Uh-oh. a little segment called cameron's goof uh-oh. Yeah, goof it uh well this is this i is... know i know you're uh, tracking my wins and losses here. uh-huh yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm keeping uh, a very close count of all the grist that you have. Um, yeah, check out my uh, wins over replacement stat. I think you're going to be <laughs> impressed. No, uh, just because I, I, again, because so many people who listen to the show tend to think of you as the person who, like, hates it or doesn't like the comic. Um, uh-huh. Like, uh, it, was there a joke or a goof in this run that you didn't get to comment on that you thought was pretty good? Mm, a joke that I that I thought was pretty good. Uh, no, I think I talked about it. I really like the car cat. Mm-hmm. Two Jades kissing. That okay. was funny to me. All I right. thought that was very funny. Okay. But I'll, I'll make it a point uh, in the future to like do little check-ins to make sure there aren't any like good jokes that, that we're missing from Cameron land. I did write in my notes, uh, 3348, wow, they sure did die. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I need to see what page that is now. I don't. I don't even know what page that is. Oh, that's the one where just Aridin just leaves. <laughs> yes. 
Oh, and then we get that picture of Carcat just like staring. Oh my god, the fans loved that. They Oh, they got that's gotta be that's gotta be like a meme in the world now, oh, right? Absolutely. So here's here's a an animated gif of uh like someone made in, in the thread of Cam uh of Cameron, Jesus. Uh oh. Yeah. Uh, of Kirkad watching <laughs> like open mouth as a sandwich flies by his face. I like that. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, well, all, all right then. I guess we can we can wrap up this part episode. Uh, next time uh, we will be reading until page three thousand five hundred forty-six, and that'll take us actually to the end of episode five. So cool. Wow.